Let me tell you a story, podcast number 92. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is how long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're recording this podcast in mid-December, so we have several Christmas readings for you. Some serious and some not so serious. And that's all I'm going to tell you. Just sit back and enjoy. The first one comes from Roger Pond's book, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. Christmas Letter I finally did it. I wrote a Christmas letter. I wrote my letter before Christmas, even though you will be reading this after the holiday. Lots of folks read my Christmas letter after the holidays, but I blame that on the Postal Service. I started writing in plenty of time. Besides, Christmas letters are like fruitcakes. They're not going to spoil. I've never sent a Christmas letter before, in deference to folks who think these missives are stilted and impersonal. I suppose they could be, but almost any news is better than no news. I admit there's something about recounting the year's events that makes a person giddy. There's nothing like four pages of vacation stories with the minute details of Junior's first birthday to keep the reader on the edge of his chair. Even that wouldn't be so bad if they wouldn't list the ingredients in the baby's cake. He wouldn't have spit up if they hadn't used so much chocolate. My Christmas letter was nothing like that. Anyone who enjoys two pages of fishing stories probably got a big kick out of it. We've sent family photos with our Christmas cards for years, but we forgot to do that this time. Maybe it was just too big a project. Last year, we sent photos of my wife and me with the kids. The year before, our pictures included Connie and me, plus the kids and their dogs. Family photos are nice, but they're such a hassle. How can you get a picture of everyone and still find someone to operate the camera? I solved that problem last year with a little timer on the camera, the one that gives you 20 seconds to run into the photo, adjust your tie, and bare your teeth. We got everyone lined up on the hearth in front of the fireplace and set the camera on a tripod. The kids were sitting in front, Connie was in the middle, and I was supposed to squat down on the hearth behind them. I've taken these before, so I'm kind of an expert at it. I focused the camera, made sure the flash was working, and set the timer. Then I ran to the hearth, squeezed in behind everyone, and squatted down. The camera went off, and everyone was smiling, except me. The kid said I should have noticed the fireplace poker before I set the timer but I can't see how that was my fault. I never take a good photo anyway. Well, I got my Christmas letter mailed, and I hope everyone had a nice holiday. If you didn't get my letter, drop me a note and I'll send you one. If you didn't get a photo, forget it. I'm not taking any more of those. Christmas Haiku by Agatha the Cat Yes. Decorations. I love to eat the plastic. 
Up it comes. Enjoy. And now from Roger Pond's book, My Dog Was a Redneck, But We Got Him Fixed, called A Sad Christmas Story. Our environmental consciousness has caused value conflicts for Americans. How can we justify cutting a beautiful evergreen to decorate for the short Christmas season? Then what can one do with the dead trees so it won't wind up buried in a landfill? This may be a problem in urban areas, but I think it could be avoided with a little planning. Experts say there are three basic remedies for the tree disposal problem. One, buy a live tree and plant it outside after Christmas. Two, get a fake tree. Three, buy a commercial tree and keep some beavers in the garage. Purchasing a live tree and replanting it in the backyard has the most appeal for many. Some of these trees will live for years, and when the yard fills up, one can always move or resort to option three. Experts say a few simple precautions can give your living Christmas tree a better chance for survival. First, it's best not to keep a live tree in the house too long. Many folks like to bring their living tree into the house for a short visit and take it back outside before it gets warm. If we do this over a period of days, the tree becomes acclimated to its new home and will soon be going to the door when it wants out. This can be carried too far, however. Those who want to use the same tree from one Christmas to the next should be aware there is nothing worse than a tree that comes to the door when it wants in. Option number two is a hard sell for me. Advocates for manufactured trees claim these creations look so natural you should keep the dog outside for a few days until he gets used to the thing. I can tell the difference, however. You might have guessed option number three is my preference. I like the real tree and don't mind supporting the Christmas tree industry. I'll even go out into the national forest and cut my own when I can. Besides, there are plenty of things one can do with a dead tree. Those who are concerned about appearances might pretend their tree is alive and plant it in the yard soon after Christmas. This satisfies the neighbors that you bought a living tree and looks perfectly normal when the tree blows down in the first windstorm. Then, lest we feel bad about being caught with a dead tree, everyone should remember the sad Christmas story. This tale is about a small forest planted by a farmer for choose-it-and-cut Christmas trees. Among the farmer's grove of trees was one scraggly little fir with a bent truck and a bad case of needle rust. Still, this little tree was hoping it would be the first one chosen when families came to select their Christmas trees. A few weeks before the big holiday, families began arriving at the farm. One by one, trees were chosen and taken home for Christmas, until finally the little fir was the only one left. The little tree was near tears with the prospect that he might not be chosen for a Christmas tree. Then, just as this poor little sapling was about to give up hope of ever amounting to anything, along came a big flock of woodpeckers and wiped him out. The moral of the story? Being cut for Christmas is not the worst thing that can happen to a tree. I'll be reading from A Little Book of Christmas by John Kendrick Bangs, published in 1912. And this short story is titled The Child Who Had Everything But. I knew it was coming long before it got there. Every symptom was in sight. 
I had grown fidgety, and sat fearful of something overpoweringly impending. Strange noises filled the house. Things generally, according to their nature, creaked and moaned. There was a ghost on the way. That was perfectly clear to an expert in uncanny visitations of my wide experience, and I heartily wished it were not. There was a time when I welcomed such visitors with open arms, because there was a decided demand for them in the literary market, and I had been able to turn a great variety of spooks into anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 words apiece at five cents a word. But now the age had grown too skeptical to swallow ghostly reminiscence with any degree of satisfaction. People had grown tired of hearing about visions and desired that their tales should reek with the scent of gasoline, quiver with the fever of tangential love, and crash with moral thunderbolts aimed against malefactors of great achievement and high social and commercial standing. Wherefore, it seemed an egregious waste of time for me to dally with a spook, or with anything else, for that matter, that had no strictly utilitarian value to one so professionally pressed as I was, and especially at a moment like that. It was Christmas morning, and the hour was twenty-eight minutes after two. When I was so busy preparing my ode to June and trying to work out the details of a midsummer romance in time for the market for such productions early in the coming January, right in the midst of all this pressure there rose up these beastly symptoms of an impending visitation. At first I strove to fight them off, but as the minutes passed they became so obsessively intrusive that I could not concentrate upon the work in hand, and I resolved to have it over with. Oh, well, said I, striking a few impatient chords upon my typewriting machine, if you insist upon coming, come, and let's have it done with. I roared this out, addressing the dim depths of the adjoining apartment, whence had risen the first dank apprehension of the uncanny something that had come to pester me. This is my busy night, I went on, when nothing happened in response to my summons and I give you fair warning that, however psychic I may be now, I've got too much to do to stay so much longer. If you're going to haunt, haunt. It was in response to this appeal that the thing first manifested itself to the eye. It took the shape first of a very slight veil of green fog, which shortly began to swirl slowly from the darkness of the other room through the intervening porches into my den. Once within, it increased the vigor of its swirl, until almost before I knew it, there was spinning immediately before my desk something in the nature of a misty maelstrom buzzing around like a pinwheel in action. Very pretty, very pretty indeed, said I, a trifle sarcastically, refusing to be impressed. But I don't care for pyrotechnics. I suppose, I added flippantly, that you were what might be called immense pyrotechnic. Eh? Whether it was the quality of my jest or some other inward pang due to its gyratory behavior that caused it, I know not, but as I spoke, a deep groan issued from the center of the whirling mist, and then out of its indeterminateness there was resolved the hazy figure of an angel, only she was an intensely modern angel. She wore a hobble skirt instead of the usual flowing robes the ladies of the supernal order, and her halo, instead of hovering over her head, 
as used to be the correct manner of wearing these hard-won adornments, had perforce become a mere golden fillet binding together the great mass of finger-curls and other distinctly yellow capillary attractions that stretched out from the back of her cerebellum for two or three feet, like a monumental psyche-knot. I could hardly restrain a shudder as I realized the theatric quality of the lady's appearance, and I honestly dreaded the possible consequences of her visit. We live in a tolerably censorious age, and I did not care to be seen in the company of such a peroxidized vision as she appeared to be. "'I am afraid, madam,' said I, shrinking back against the wall as she approached. "'I am very much afraid that you have got into the wrong house. Mr. Slatherberry, the theatrical manager, lives next door.' She paid no attention to this observation, but, holding out a compelling hand, bade me come along with her, her voice having about it all the musical charm of an oboe suffering from bronchitis. "'Not in a year of Sundays, I won't,' I retorted. "'I am a respectable man, a steady churchgoer, a trustee for several philanthropic institutions, and a Sunday school teacher. I don't wish to be impolite, but really, madam,' Rich as I am in reputation, I am too poor to be seen in public with you. I am a spirit, she began. I'll take your word for it, I interjected, and I could see that she told the truth, for she was entirely diaphanous, so much so indeed that one could perceive the piano in the other room with perfect clarity through her intervening shadiness. It is, however, the unfortunate fact that I have sworn off spirits. Nonetheless, she returned, her eyes flashing, and her hand held forth peremptorily, you must come. It is your predestined doom. My next remark I am not wholly clear about, but, as I remember it, it sounded something like, I'll be doomed if I do. Whereupon she threatened me. It is useless to resist, she said, if you decline to come voluntarily. I shall hypnotize you and force you to follow me. We have need of you. But, my dear lady, I pleaded, please have some regard for my position. I never did any of you spirits any harm. I've treated every visitor from the spirit land with the most distinguished consideration. And I feel that you owe it to me to be regardful of my good name. Suppose you take a look at yourself in yonder looking glass, and then say if you think it fair to compel a decent law-abiding man of domestic inclinations like myself to be seen in public with, well, with a, such a looking head of hair as that of yours. My visitor laughed heartily. Oh, if that's all, she said most amiably, we can arrange matters in a jiffy. Your wife possesses a hooded Macintosh, does she not? I think I saw something of the kind hanging on the hat rack as I floated in. I will wear it that, if it will make you feel any easier. It certainly would, said I, but see here, can't you scare up some other cavalier to escort you to the haven of your desires? She fixed a sternly steady eye upon me for a moment. Aren't you the man who wrote the lines? The world's a green and gladsome ball, and love's the ruler of it all, and life's the chance vouchsafed to me for deeds and gifts of sympathy. Didn't you write that? she demanded. I did, madam, said I, and I meant every word of it. But what of it? Is that any reason why I should be seen on a public highway with a lady ghost of your especial kind? 
Enough of your objections, she retorted firmly. You are the person for whom I have been sent. We have a case needing your immediate attention. The only question is, will you come pleasantly and of your own free will, or must I resort to extreme measures? These words were spoken with such determination that I realized that further resistance was useless, and I yielded. All right, said I, on your way. I'll follow. Good, she cried, her face wreathing with a pleasant little Nile green smile. Get the Macintosh, and we'll be off. There's no time to lose, she added as the clock in the tower on the square boomed out the hour of three. What is this, anyhow, I demanded as I helped her on with the Macintosh and saw that the hood covered every vestige of that awful hair. Another case of Scrooge? Sort of, she replied, as hooking her arm in mine, she led me forth into the night. We passed over to Fifth Avenue and proceeded uptown at a pace which reminded me of the active gait of my youth. My footsteps had grown unwontedly light, and we covered the first ten blocks in about three minutes. We don't seem to be headed for the slums, I panted. Indeed, we're not, she retorted. There is no need of carrying coals to Newcastle on this occasion. This isn't a slum case. It's far more acute than that. A tear came forth from her eye and trickled down over the Macintosh. It is a peculiarity of modern effort on behalf of suffering humanity, she went on, that it is concentrated upon the relief of the misery of the so-called submerged, to the other neglect of the often more poignant need of the emerged. We have workers by the thousand in the slums doing all that can be done, and successfully, too, to relieve the unhappy condition of the poor. But nobody ever seems to think of the sorrows of the starving hundreds on Upper Fifth Avenue. "'See here, madam,' said I, stopping suddenly short under a lamp-post in front of the public library. "'I want to tell you right now that if you think you are going to take me into any of the homes of the hopelessly rich at this hour of the morning, you are the most mightily mistaken creature that ever wore a psyche-knot. "'Why, great heavens, my dear lady, suppose the owner of the house were to wake and demand to know what I was doing there at this time of night. "'What could I say?' "'You have gone on slumming parties, haven't you?' she demanded coldly. Often, said I, but that's different. Why, she asked, with a simplicity that baffled me. Is it any worse for you to intrude upon the home of a Fifth Avenue millionaire than it is to go unasked into the small, squalid tenement of some poor sweatshop worker on the east side? Oh, but that's different, I protested. I go there to see if there's anything I can do to relieve the unhappy condition of the persons who live in the slums. "'No doubt,' said she. "'I'll take your word for it. "'But is that any reason why you should neglect the sufferers "'who live in these marble palaces?' "'As she spoke, she hooked hold of my arm once more, "'and in a moment we were climbing the front doorsteps "'of a palatial residence. "'The house showed a dark and forbidding front at that hour in the morning, "'despite its marble splendors, "'and I was glad to note that the massive grill doors of wrought iron "'were heavily barred. "'It's useless, you see. We're locked out,' I ventured. "'Indeed,' she retorted with a sarcastic smile. "'She seized my hand in her icy grip "'and literally pulled me after her through the marble front of the dwelling. "'What have we to do with bolts and bars?' "'I don't know,' said I ruefully, "'but I have a notion that if I don't bolt, I'll get the bars all right.' 
All you have to do is follow me, she went on, as we floated upward for two flights, paying but little attention to the treasures of art that lined the walls, and finally passed into a suburbly lighted salon, more daintily beautiful than anything of the kind I had ever seen before. Jove! I exclaimed, standing amazed in the presence of such luxury and beauty. I did not realize that with all her treasures, New York had anything quite so fine as this. What is it? A music room? It is a nursery, said my companion. Look about you and see for yourself. I did as I was bidden, and such an array of toys that inspection revealed. Truly, it looked as if the toy market in all sections of the world had been levied upon for tribute. Had all the famous toy emporiums of Nuremberg itself been transported thither bodily, there could not have been playthings in greater variety than there greeted my eye. From the most insignificant of tin soldiers to the most intricate of mechanical toys for the delectation of the youthful mind, nothing that I could think of was missing. The tin soldiers, as ever, had a fascination for me, and in an instant I was down upon the floor, ranging them in their serried ranks, while the face of my companion wreathed with an indulgent smile. "'You'll do,' she said, as I loaded a little spring cannon with a stub of a lead pencil and bowled over half a regiment with one well-directed shot. "'These are the finest tin soldiers I ever saw,' I cried with enthusiasm. "'Only they're not tin,' said she. Solid silver, every man jack of them, except the officers. They're made of platinum. And will you look at that little electric railroad, I cried, my eye ranging to the other end of the salon. Stations, switches, danger signals, cars of all kinds, and even miniature Pullmans with real little bursts that can be let up and down. Who is the lucky kid who's getting all these beautiful things? Shh, she whispered, putting her finger to her lips. He is coming. Go on and play. Pretend you don't see him until he speaks to you. As she spoke, a door at the far end of the apartment swung gently open, and a little boy tiptoed softly in. He was a golden-haired little chap, and I fell in love with his soft, dreamy eyes the moment my own rested upon them. I could not help glancing up furtively to see his joy over the discovery of all these wondrous possessions. But alas! To my surprise, there was only an unemotional stare in his eyes as they swept the aggregation of childish treasures. Then, on a sudden, he saw me, squatting on the floor, setting up again the army of silver warriors. "'How do you do?' he said gently, with just a touch of weariness in his sad little voice. "'Good morning, and a Merry Christmas to you, sir,' I replied. "'What are you doing?' he asked drawing near and watching me with a good deal of seeming curiosity. "'I am playing with your soldiers,' said I. "'I hope you don't mind.' "'Oh, no, indeed,' he replied. "'But what do you mean by that? "'What is playing?' "'I could hardly believe my ears. "'What is what?' said I. "'You said you were playing, sir,' said he. "'And I don't know exactly what you mean.' "'Why,' said I, scratching my head hard in a mad quest for a definition, for I couldn't for the life of me think of the answer to his question offhand, any more than I could define one of the elements. "'Playing is... why, it's playing, laddie. Don't you know what it is to play?' "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'It's what you do on the piano. I've been taught to play on the piano, sir.' 
Oh, but this is different, said I. This kind is fun. It's what most little boys do with their toys. You mean breaking them, said he. No, indeed, said I. It's getting all the fun there is out of them. I think I should like to do that, said he, with a fixed gaze upon the soldiers. Can a little fellow like me learn to play that way? Well, rather, Kitty, said I, reaching out and taking him by the hand. Sit down here on the floor alongside of me, and I'll show you. Oh, no, said he, drawing back. I, I can't sit on the floor. I catch cold. Now, who under the canopy told you that? I demanded, somewhat impatiently, I fear. My governess and both my nurses, sir, said he. You see, there are drafts. Well, there won't be any drafts this time, said I. Just you sit down here, and we'll have a game of marbles. Ever play marbles with your father? No, sir, he replied. He's always too busy, and neither of my nurses has ever known how. But your mother comes up here and plays games with you sometimes, doesn't she? I asked. Mother is busy, too, said the child. Besides, she wouldn't care for a game which you had to sit on the floor to... I sprang to my feet and lifted him bodily in my arms, and after squatting him over by the fireplace, where, if there were any drafts at all, they would be as harmless as a summer breeze. I took up a similar position on the other side of the room, and initiated him into the mystery of Meagles, as well as I could, considering that all his marbles were real agates. "'You don't happen to have a china alley anywhere, do you?' I asked. "'No, sir,' he answered. "'We only have china plates.' Never mind, I interrupted. We can get along very nicely with these. And then, for half an hour, despite the rich quality of our paraphernalia, that little boy and I indulged in a glorious game of real plebeian migs, and it was a joy to see how quickly his stiff little fingers relaxed and adapted themselves to the uses of his eye, which was as accurate as it was deeply blue. So expert did he become that in a short while he had completely cleaned me out giving joyous little cries of delight with every hit. And then we turned our attention to the soldiers. "'I want some playing now,' he said gleefully, as I informed him that he had beaten me out of my boots at one of my best games. "'Show me what you were doing with those soldiers when I came in.' "'All right,' said I, obeying with alacrity. First, we'll have a parade.' I started a great talking machine standing in one corner of the room off on a spirited military march, and inside of ten minutes, with his assistance, I had all the troops out, and to all intents and purposes, bravely swinging by to the martial music of Susa. "'How's that?' said I, when we had got the whole corps arranged to our satisfaction. "'Fine!' he cried, jumping up and down on the floor and clapping his hands with glee. I've got lots more of these stored away in my toy closet, he went on, but I never knew that you could do such things as this with them. What did you think they were for? I asked. Why, just to, to keep, he said hesitantly. Wait a minute, said I, wheeling a couple of cannon off to a distance of a yard from the passing troops. I'll show you something else you can do with them. I loaded both cannon to the muzzle with dried peas and showed him how to shoot. "'Now,' said I, "'fire!' He snapped the spring, and the dried peas flew out like death-dealing shells in war. In a moment, the platinum commander of the forces and about thirty-seven solid silver warriors lay flat on their backs. It needed only a little red ink on the carpet to reproduce in miniature a scene of great carnage. 
but I shall never forget the expression of mingled joy and regret on his countenance as those creatures went down. Don't you like it, son? I asked. I don't know, he said, with an anxious glance at the prostrate warriors. They aren't dead, are they? Of course not, said I, restoring the presumably defunct troopers to life by setting them up again. The only thing that'll dead a soldier like these is to step on him. Try the other gun. Thus reassured, he did as I bade him, and again the proud paraders went down, this time amid shouts of glee, and so we passed an all too fleeting two hours, that little boy and I. Through the whole list of his famous toys we went, and as well as I could I taught him the delicious uses of each and all of them, until finally he seemed to grow weary, and so, drawing up a big armchair before the fire, and taking his tired little body into my lap, with his tousled head cuddled up close over the spot where my heart is alleged to be, I started to read a story to him out of one of the many beautiful books that had been provided for him by his generous parents. But I had not gone far when I saw that his attention was wandering. "'Perhaps you'd rather have me tell you a story instead of reading it,' said I. "'What's to tell a story?' he asked, fixing his blue eyes gravely upon mine. "'Great Scott, Kitty,' said I. "'Didn't anybody ever tell you a story?' "'No, sir,' he replied sleepily. "'I get read to every afternoon by my governess, "'but nobody ever told me a story.' "'Well, just you listen to this,' said I, "'giving him a hearty squeeze. "'Once upon a time there was a little boy,' I began, "'and he lived in a beautiful house not far from the park, "'and his daddy—' "'What's a daddy?' asked the child, "'looking up into my face. "'Why, a daddy is a little boy's father,' I explained.' "'You've got a daddy?' "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'If a daddy is a father, I've got one. "'I saw him yesterday,' he added. "'Oh, did you?' said I. "'And what did he say to you?' "'He said he was glad to see me "'and hoped I was a good boy,' said the child. "'He seemed very glad when I told him I hoped so, too. "'And he gave me all these things here, he and my mother.' "'That was very nice of them,' I said huskily.' "'And they're both coming up sometime today or tomorrow to see if I like them,' said the lad. "'And what are you going to say?' I asked, with difficulty getting the words out over a most unaccountable lump that had arisen in my throat. "'I'm going to tell them,' he began, as his eyes closed sleepily, "'that I like them all very, very much.' "'And which one of them all do you like the best?' said I. He snuggled up closer in my arms, and raising his little head a trifle higher, he kissed me on the tip of end of my chin, and murmured softly as he dropped off to sleep, You. Good night, said my spectral visitor as she left me, once more bending over my desk, whither I had been retransported without my knowledge, for I must have fallen asleep too, with that little boy in my arms. You have done a good night's work. "'Have I?' said I, rubbing my eyes to see if I were really awake. "'But tell me, who was that little kitty anyhow?' "'He,' she answered with a smile, "'why, he is the child who has everything but.' And then she vanished from my sight. "'Everything but what?' I cried, starting up and peering into the darkness into which she had disappeared. But there was no response.' and I was left alone to guess the answer to my question. 
to get you in the true Christmas spirit with the true Christmas story, we'll be reading from Luke chapters 1 and 2 in the World English Bible, which you can access, like we did, at ebible.org. Luke chapter 1. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the priestly division of Abijah. He had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were well advanced in years. Now while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, because your request has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to prepare a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that these things will happen, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias, and they marveled that he delayed in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. He continued making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his service were fulfilled, he departed to his house. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus has the Lord done to me in the days in which he looked at me, to take away my reproach among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph, of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, you highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, seeing I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is born from you will be called the Son of God. 
Behold, Elizabeth, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing spoken by God is impossible. Mary said, Behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste, into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She called out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came into my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of the things which have been spoken to her from the Lord. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has looked at the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for generations of generations on those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down princes from their thrones and has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has given help to Israel, his servant, that he might remember mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her house. Now the time that Elizabeth should give birth was fulfilled, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his mercy toward her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zacharias after the name of his father. His mother answered, Not so, but he will be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. They made signs to his father what he would have him called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all marveled. His mouth was opened immediately and his tongue freed and he spoke, blessing God. Fear came on all who lived around them. And all these sayings were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them laid them up in their heart, saying, What then will this child be? The hand of the Lord was with him. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant to us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, should serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child was growing and becoming strong in spirit and was in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Luke chapter 2 Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to David's city, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as wife being pregnant. While they were there, the day had come for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds in the same country staying in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you today in David's city a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, good will toward men. When the angels went away from them into the sky, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they publicized widely the saying which was spoken to them about this child. All who heard it wondered at the things which were spoken to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, just as it was told them. Here are some quotations about Christmas from Chris Jammy in her book, Colosophy. The reality of loving God is loving him like he's a superhero who's actually saved you from stuff, rather than a Santa Claus who merely gave you some stuff. From Philip Yancey. Yet, as I read the birth stories about Jesus, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted toward the rich and powerful, God is tilted toward the underdog. From Sandra Chami Cassis, instead of protesting and cursing others because they write Xmas instead of Christmas, try being Christmas. Live Christmas. Breathe Christmas. Act Christmas. Speak Christmas. Reflect Christmas. Listen and feel Christmas. Christ doesn't care how you write Christmas. He cares how you live Christmas all year long. The last one will be from John Piper. 
Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. It will not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a Savior. And that will take us out. Many thanks to Cousin Bob for the Agatha haiku, and we thank you, our listeners, for joining us. We wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca K. Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.